Good morning. Glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of John uh, in chapter 1 this morning, with the starting with the first 18 verses. And as we prepare our hearts and our lives for Christmas later this week, um, I felt like it would be really good for us to, over the next two weeks, consider the coming of Christ. Um, and so obviously today we're going to talk about the first coming of Christ when he came at Christmas. And next week we're going to look at the second coming of Christ where he will come and finally redeem all things to himself. <clears throat> and so uh, if you would uh, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John chap uh, chapter 1. And let's look together at the first coming. So the first thing I want us to see um, in the first 13 verses of John chapter 1 is I want us to see parallels with promise. Parallels with promise. And so before we actually get into John, I want to recap something from earlier in Scripture all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, in Genesis 1, uh, starting there, we see the story of creation. God creates everything that exists out of nothing. Uh, and he literally speaks things into existence. So, so the Bible recounts God saying, let there be light. And there is light. And so he continues on this way and he creates all things by speaking. But... When he gets to the part, when he gets to the point where he's going to make man and later woman, he forms man and woman with his hands. Man he forms out of the dust and dirt of the ground. Woman he forms out of the rib of man. And after he forms them with his hands, he literally breathes life into them. So there is something significant and special about how God makes and creates man and woman versus the rest of creation. And that, that, that creation with his hands gives us, <clears throat> excuse me, a window into his desire to create man and woman in his own image, giving them characteristics of himself. It's not that we look like God. It's that we are like God in certain ways. And so this man and this woman are placed into this garden and they are told to tend the garden and, and, and help each other in that endeavor. And then in Genesis chapter three, we see the fall of man. Uh, there was a tree in the garden um, that Adam and Eve were explicitly commanded not to eat from. And they could eat of any other tree in the garden. And they were fine with this for a while. And then they were deceived by the serpent. Um, the serpent is Satan. And the, the deception there was essentially that the serpent expressed to Adam and Eve that God did not want them to eat of this tree because he knew that they would become like him. And he was trying to 
keep and withhold good things from Adam and Eve? Is that not the story of our reaction and relation to sin? We think our sin is something that is good and it's being kept from us. It's being withheld from us. Um, and so they are deceived by the serpent and they eat from the tree that they were commanded not to eat from. And ultimately, this sin is a rejection of God. They have taken what God has told them, do not eat from this tree. And they have rejected that in favor of what the serpent has told them, which is, this is a really good thing. God is trying to keep it from you, so you should do it. They have rejected God in favor of their own way. And so as a result, they are banished from the garden. Among other things, now they will face death. Uh, now the woman will face pain in childbirth or increased pain in childbirth. It's not really clear how much pain in childbirth there was before the fall, but there's definitely more now. And then man, um, in his work, will find it to be a much more difficult endeavor uh, in an attempt to care for the earth and care for his family. And But there's two things there that God did that I want to make sure that we see. Okay, The first thing he did was he made them a promise. He made a promise in Genesis 3.15. And, and actually, he, he made this promise to the serpent but it is applicable to us. And so in, in speaking condemnation to the serpent, he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so there is this promise here of a coming savior, one who will come and defeat this that this serpent defeat this sin uh, that the serpent is the representative of, and he will be the one that ultimately will destroy uh, sin and death and, and all the things that are associated with it. Uh, and then the second thing that God did, he covered their shame. And so initially in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, um, and they were... Uh, walking around in the garden because without sin, there, there was nothing about being naked that caused any kind of a sinful desire in them. And so being naked meant literally nothing because they had no sin. They had no desires that were sinful. And so there was nothing to be concerned about in that. Um, after their sin, they were ashamed and they hid that the sinful desires were immediately apparent to them in that even though there were no other people, there were no other humans around, it was just the man and his wife and God who had made them. For whatever reason, Adam and Eve became ashamed. And so they hid from God. And when God asked them why they hid, um, they said, because we were, were naked and, and, and we were afraid. And so God, uh, they, they tried to make coverings for themselves out of fig leaves and much, uh, much like all of our attempts to cover our own sin and take care of our own sin 
it was woefully uh, insufficient. And so God um, sacrifices an animal and makes animal skin coverings for them. So he gives them a better covering for their sin, for their shame. And so after Adam and Eve left the garden, they're in, in chapter 4 of Genesis, uh, they have a son. Um, because remember, the, the promise was that the woman would have offspring that would defeat the serpent. And so Eve has a son, and she names him Cain, or in Hebrew, Cain. Um, and and the, the Bible says that she named him Cain, and I talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, she named him Cain because, quote, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Um, the, the, the word that's translated as, as Cain there, that Hebrew word, uh, has the same root as the word acquired. Um, and it's a similar Hebrew word to possession. So when you see this in the Bible where, especially, excuse me, in the Old Testament, where they talk about his name was this because this, it's typically because the word sounds similar to this word that has this specific meaning. And so that's the deal with Cain's name is that it's a similar word to the word possession. And so when we think of possession, it's not just simply like, this is mine now. But this is a treasured, um, highly regarded possession. She is thinking, this is the promise. She's thinking Cain would be her promised deliverer. He would be the one who would defeat the serpent and make things right with God again. He would be the one that would bring them back into the garden, into relationship with God. And just a few verses later, Cain murders his brother. He murders his brother. And so it's immediately apparent that Cain is not the answer. Cain is not the one who is going to be the redeemer, who is going to bring us back to God. And this happens repeatedly. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and on and on and on and on it goes. Over and over again, the offspring of the woman fail. They fail over and over and over again. And so this idea of the woman's offspring is going to defeat the serpent, it almost appears to be hopeless. And yet throughout the Old Testament, the promises keep coming. The promises keep coming that say the Messiah will be here. The Messiah will be here. The Redeemer will be here. And that brings us to John chapter 1. So let's look together. John chapter 1 at the first 13 verses as we get started here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John begins his gospel in the same way that Genesis 1 begins, with the words in the beginning. That's on purpose. That's intentional. John <clears throat> is trying to draw his readers' attention and their minds to the creation account as he begins to tell us about who Jesus is. And so John says, in the beginning was the Word with a capital W. In the beginning was the Word with a capital W. Now, first of all, I'm going to get ahead a little bit and make sure you understand that when the Bible talks about the Word here in John chapter 1, that is a reference to Jesus Christ. In verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that is talking specifically about Jesus. Okay, so I want to make sure you make that connection in your mind, just in case you weren't already aware of that. All right, so in the beginning was the Word. So think back to Genesis. How did God create? How did God create things? He created things by speaking, right? He said, let there be light. And light happened. So when, when John says here, in the beginning was the word, he is trying to help us to recognize that the power by which God made all things is Christ himself. That word that was spoken, that power there, that's Jesus. That's what John is trying to draw our attention to. And then he goes on and he says, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this idea of the beginning has to do with saying before ever, before anything else was, God was. And so the word, Jesus, was there in the beginning with God. So John is kind of <clears throat> almost in a redundant sense, making sure that we recognize Jesus was there in the beginning, before anything else. Before things were created, Jesus was. And Jesus was, slash is, God. So Christ, Jesus Christ, is God. And when nothing else existed, Christ did. And in verse 3, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So again here, John wants you to make sure, wants to make sure that we understand Jesus is not a created being. There are heresies that have floated around for centuries. They're not new heresies, they're old heresies. But these heresies say that in some way, Jesus is a created being who is not fully God, who either A, was given divinity by God in some sense, or he earned it in some sense. And those are not true. That's not true. That is <clears throat> literal heresy that will condemn you to hell. If you do not believe that Jesus is fully God, that he is an uncreated being, you are not a Christian. This is an essential thing for us to believe. And John wants to make sure that we really 
understand it. And so he explains to us, nothing was made that was made apart from Christ. So if Christ is a created being, how could that be? Because all things were created by and through Jesus. So he could not be created because he is the creator. Do you see that? That's what John's trying to express. And so he wants to make sure that when we read these, these words in the beginning, when we think about the creation account, that we don't just think about God the Father. We think about God the Father and God the Son, because Christ was there. Christ was an active participant, and he was the power by which God was creating. Then we get to verse 4, and we see another parallel. God said, let there be light. And he breathed life into mankind. And what does it say in verse 4? In him, him being Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. So just as God said, let there be light. And just as God breathed life into mankind, Jesus is the source of life and light. In Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. And when you think back to the fall, when you think back to the, the consistent way that men have failed in this hope for a redeemer, a hope for a savior, it can seem like the darkness has overcome the light. But what does John say? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The third parallel that I want you to notice here, and I'm going to kind of bypass the next couple of verses. Not that they're not important. They are important. They're, they're a reference here to John the Baptist because John the Baptist was so highly regarded by so many people. And John, who is not John the Baptist, John the, the Apostle, wants to make sure that people see even John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was the true light. Jesus, that, that John the Baptist was not the true light. He was the one to testify about the light, um, to bear witness, as it were. Uh, and so we get to um, verse 9, and he says, that The true light, which gives light to everyone. So he, again, he's continuing with this kind of, you know, attachment of Jesus to the light. The true light, uh, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. So again, he's reiterating, Jesus is light. Jesus is creator. The world was made through him. So it's his world. And what does it say? Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So the third parallel that I want us to notice is that just as God was rejected by the people that he made, that he created, Jesus was rejected by his people. Even though he is the true light, even though he created the world, the world did not know him. The people of God, the people of Israel, the ones who were supposed to be waiting and watching for him, the ones who had received the promises and the prophecies, the ones who were supposed to be patiently and eagerly anticipating his coming, they did not receive him. Here he is. Here is the one promised in Genesis 3. Here he is. Here is the one talked about in Genesis 1. 
here he is. And they did not receive him. When John uses the word receive there, this this has a couple of things at play. Uh, this, this is not just... Uh, the, the it, When it talks about not knowing him and not receiving him, that this is not just an intellectual agreement with some facts, but, but also welcoming and submitting to him. So, so there's kind of two sides to this coin. You, you can't just say, I believe you and not submit to him. Because ultimately, it means you don't really believe. If you really believe that Jesus is God, you're going to submit. And so these people, his people, were unwilling to welcome him and submit to him. But in th- at this time, instead of hiding from God, like Adam and Eve did in their sin, his creations were overtly hostile toward him. Ultimately, they killed him. And th- this is a testimony to what sin has done to the human heart. Where Adam and Eve sinned and their instinct was to hide from God out of fear of his anger and out of shame over their nakedness, these folks now are just overtly hostile toward the Creator. Here, in in the fulfillment of God's promise to send a conqueror to defeat the serpent, his people are rejecting that victory. But instead of rejecting us right back, he has opened his arms to us. He's opened his arms to us. What does it say here? It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So instead of rejecting us back because we have rejected him, He has opened his arms to us, and those of us who do receive him are given reconciliation with God. And and this was not an accident. This was always the intention. This was always the plan. This was always what God was going to do. And he says it here, that the new birth is not of blood or of the the will of our flesh, but of the will of God. So, So if you remember in Genesis 1, this is, this is the, the, the promise of covering that he gave to Adam and Eve. So there's that, that promise of the, the coming Savior was linked to the covering of their shame. This is the fulfillment, that, that right to be called sons and daughters of God, the right to become children of God, that is the covering of our sin and shame with Christ's blood. And so that's the parallels that we see from Genesis here in John 1, in Jesus Christ. The next thing that we see is we see Emmanuel, which means God with us, here in verses 14 through 18. Let's read those together. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In Exodus chapter 29, as God has been giving instructions for the tabernacle and the priests for several chapters, 
he, he makes this statement in verses 45 and 46 in reference to the, the tabernacle. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God's intention is to be with his people, to, to be among them. And so they, they even went so far as when the, the Israelites were camped in the wilderness, they would camp with the tabernacle in the center and then the tribes around the tabernacle. So literally, the tabernacle was among all of the people. God was in the center of them. But ultimately, this is almost a kind of imagery because in reality, the fullness of God did not dwell in the tabernacle. The fullness of God was not there. The fullness of God is, is, is everywhere. And so it was not simply within the tabernacle and it was not within what, what would later uh, be known as the Ark of the Covenant. And even further beyond that, the fullness of God did not dwell in the temple once it was built. God certainly was among his people. That, that was not a lie, but there was not a face-to-face -face relationship. The Israelites could not simply go to God of their own accord. There were specific and strict regulations as to how that would happen. And priests would have to undergo like these certain ritual cleansings and only one person could go into the, the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was even in a, a smaller measure, this, th there was not a fullness of relationship there. And that was because of the sin of the Israelites. Their sin kept them from being able to draw near to him because his holiness would kill them. But then we get to John 1. And again, utilizing some of this Old Testament, th these Old Testament testimonies about God, we get to John 1 and John links these things specifically to Christ because what does it say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the word, the same word who created all things, God himself, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. So Elsewhere in scripture, it tells us that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. So when we think about the, about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the fullness of God was among his people. And so there, and then what it says, we have seen his glory. This is a reference to Exodus 33, when Moses asked God to see his glory. And God tells him, you, you cannot look on me and live. Seeing God's glory would kill Moses. And so ultimately, Moses is allowed to see God's back. He can't see the fullness of God's glory. This is another picture of how God did not fully dwell with the Israelites. We, we, we could not see his, his glory. But what do we see here? We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Christ, we have seen the glory of God that Moses could not see. 
God has revealed himself to us in this way, in Christ, in a way that was not possible in the Old Testament. And so when John says that Jesus is full, that this glory is full of grace and truth, it means, and what we need to consider here, we have received unmerited favor from God. We have received this undeserved, extravagant favor. But we've also been revealed the truth. We've also had the truth revealed to us. God does not simply say, your sin is no big deal. God does not simply say, I just love you so much that I'm just willing to sweep it all under the rug. No, what God says, what the truth is, is that I am willing to pay the tremendous cost required to redeem my people for myself. That is what I will do. That is what we see when we see grace and truth. We see in Jesus Christ, we see unmerited favor told to us in the truth. And so out of that fullness, out of that fullness of grace and truth, we have all received grace upon grace. So grace is already unmerited favor. It's already just this overwhelming sense of God being for us. And John says, listen, it's even more than you think. It's grace upon grace. It is just this overflow, this overflow of, of favor that God continually and consistently shows to us. In verse 17, he says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In another place in scripture, it talks about the law as being as being a tutor that, that brings us to Christ. The conviction of sin, the, the law, the thing that shows us our, our depravity and our need for God came through Moses. But grace and truth, redemption came through Jesus Christ. They came through Jesus Christ. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Even Moses didn't see God, the only God. But Jesus has made the Father known. He's made the Father known. So when we think about the coming of Christ, when we think about Christmas, Remember Christmas in light of creation. Because when God created all things in Genesis 1, we read about that. That was all done with Jesus in mind. That was all done by and through Jesus. And it was all done to point our hearts to Christ ultimately. That's what it was done for. That's the reason it's there. And so when we think about that, it is intended to draw our hearts to the plan of God resting in this tiny baby born in a manger. That's what 
we should be considering at Christmas. That the fullness of God took on flesh and dwelled among us in a way that had never happened before. That God was fulfilling his promise to redeem mankind from sin in a way that had never happened before. That in that baby, all of the promises of God find their yes. As we consider Christmas, it's not about presents. It's not about it's not about candy, it's not about carols, it's not about trees and decorations, and all those things are fine. But what Christmas is about, Christmas is about the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us to redeem us from sin. And as we close recognize that both creation and the coming of Christ contain rejection. And next week, we're going to look at how there's going to be redemption for that too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for grace upon grace that you have shown us in Christ. Thank you for the word made flesh that we celebrate this week at Christmas. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would not simply find joy in the holiday season, but they would find joy in Christ and Christ alone. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to pay the cost, to cover our shame, to crush the serpent, to bring us back into relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name and for his glory forever. Amen. Thank you very much and Merry Christmas.